Look, you guys. I know you're all choked up, kind of overcome with joy at the fact that Superman has ended the arms race. But if we work together, we can make the world safe for war profits. Get to the point. The point is this. I, Lex Luthor, the greatest criminal mind of the modern era, have discovered a way to destroy Superman. Behold, my unscrupulous friends. Shut those blinds. The sun is hurting my eyes. Exactly. You know what the sun is? It's nothing more than a huge nuclear bomb. A bomb with so much radiation in it, it could incinerate the average man like... Yes, but Superman is no average man. Aha, right. What is your plan? Boys, old Lex here is uh, kind of a secret recipe. A uh, genetic stew in this dish, if you will. If you'll help me put this on one of your missiles, I promise you, Superman will have the biggest surprise of his life. I'll introduce him to his first nightmare. A nuclear man. He'll pierce his skin. He'll make him mortal. He'll become sick. He'll dance on his grave. Why should we do a deal with a notorious scoundrel like you? Remember my motto. The more fear you make, the more loot you take. And the more missiles you guys sell. Yes, but what's in it for you? A tiny commission. Something inappropriate. A number with a lot of zeros behind it. Welcome to I Saw It on Linden Street, the show dedicated to the joy of finding an appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for joining us. Now, this isn't your standard film review, rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with a little bit of background thrown in on the actors, information on the director, and hey, if I'm doing my job, perhaps you'll get a half-amusing story out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers, so if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and hey, I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend, give us a favorable review, subscribe. Our season-long theme, The Summer of Canon, continues to roll on, and this week, the LSCE screens the 1987 comic book franchise train wreck, Superman IV, The Quest for Peace. Join us! When I was a kid, back when we were living in Schaumburg, Illinois, in the mid to late 80s, I was fortunate enough, yeah, this part's sarcasm, that due to my late birthday and my general, I'll use a technical phrase, no fucks given attitude at the tender age of five, seriously, you want me to go sit and use a light bright to do letters of the alphabet on a piece of paper? 
please, this playroom has Star Wars toys. I will be over there in the corner. Thank you. Both of those factors made me a prime candidate to be one of those <clears throat> special kids that did a third tour of duty at preschool. I know, lucky, right? Well, all joking aside, it truly was fortunate because I got to make friends with a set of twin brothers, John and Mike, two lads who would be in my life right up until about high school, and even when we all moved away from each other during our grade school careers, we still kept in touch and still got together. I happened to be sleeping over at John and Mike's when I got to experience a number of interesting films over the years. Cool stuff, like Joe Dante's Explorers, the magical Australian movie The Quest, of course, next week's film Masters of the Universe, Peaches Zoo Olympics, the terrifying, for my age, Twilight Zone the movie, and of course, this week's offering, Superman 4. The quest for peace. Now, on the particular evening in question some 34 odd years ago, three boys had just been treated to an excellent meal of personal pan pizzas at none other than Pizza Hut. And they were delighted to return back and see that there was a white and blue box from Blockbuster that had been secured by none other than John and Mike's dad, and he was happy to announce the title was going to be Superman 4, showing it was printed right on the side and it was going to be our evening's entertainment. After donning our Transformer jammies and each of us getting a bowl of chocolate chip ice cream, we sat on a couch in rapt attention as Superman battled Nuclear Man across the face of the moon, melting our six-year-old brains and creating a really cherished memory. But honestly, my nostalgia for all of this aside, if we're going to talk about Superman 4, we got to first talk about Superman. And if you're going to do that, you got to talk about the father and son duo who actually owned the rights to the franchise, the Salkinds. The Superman franchise itself was controlled in the late 1970s and into the early 1980s by the father and son producing team Alexander and Ilya Salkind. Well, the duo had undoubtedly made Mad Bank on the 1978 feature and its 1981 sequel. The returns actually took a bit of a dip in 83 when Superman 3 came out. That's the one that injected comedian Richard Pryor into the mix and it was released to, well, it wasn't a complete failure, but less than gangbuster returns. Making things a little more complicated, for his part, actor Christopher Reeve, who had been playing the Man of Steel in the franchise, was kind of growing bored with the role, and he wanted to do different work. Plus, in his own estimation, he felt he was starting to age out of being a superhero. I mean, come on, seriously, he was almost in his mid-30s. Yeah, you know, you might as well give Pop-Pop his walker and a bag of prunes right now. Jeez, I mean, somewhere out there, Hugh Jackman is just, like, grimacing for no reason. Still, the Salkinds had stated publicly that, as far as they were concerned, they would release Superman films until it stopped being profitable for them. And they were quick to point out in interviews with Variety that, to us, Superman is like James Bond. We can just keep making these movies, whether or not Reeve is actually on board. <laughs> hubris. Gotta love it. Well, 
the Salkinds would end up changing their tune when their next two big features tanked hard at the box office. The first was 1984's Supergirl with Helen Slater that didn't even end up making back half of its $30 million budget. And the other was a film that we've actually covered on this show here previously, 1985's Santa Claus the Movie. That would only take in $23.7 million against a $50 million budget. Hemorrhaging funds, the Salkinds were suddenly very open to selling off the rights to what they now viewed as a non-performing asset. And honestly, in retrospect, it looks like Canon played right into their hands. You see, you gotta understand, when the Salkinds bought the rights to Superman back in 1975, they had only paid Warner Brothers $3 million for the rights to make the pictures. And the first three films would go on to make them a fortune. 1978's Superman the Movie was made for a very, very respectable big studio budget of $55 million, and for that it returned over $300 million at the box office. Superman 2, made for just a little less, $54 million, returned an equally respectable $190 million at the box office. But again, diminishing returns being what they are, Superman 3 would be made for the lesser 39 and would return 80. Again, still profitable. Golan and Globus were only seeing dollar signs and envisioning potential fortunes for themselves and canon. And that's right when the Salkinds sold them the rights to the film and the character for a cool $5 million. The Go-Go Boys then began to attempt to court Christopher Reeve to join them for a fourth outing and to try to convince him to don the tights again and play a superhero. Now, we know that canon is not really flush with cash at the moment and they just tried that experiment where they paid stallone for over the top and lost big but what they can do is give christopher reeve five million dollars and tell him we're gonna pay you this to star once more as superman but this is also going to be payment for you to star in a side project that you care about. And Reeve was carrying around a little script with him called Street Smart. Cannon would let him in on the writing of the next Superman picture and would make that movie for him. And under those conditions, Reeve was finally able to get his passion film made. It was a script that was a rumination on the very real 1980 Janet Cook scandal, where Washington Post journalist Cook received a Pulitzer Award for her story about a nine-year-old heroin addict, only to later have it revealed not only had she made the entire story up, but she had even lied about her education and work history when she got the job at the Post. Screenwriter David Freeman, who had penned the 1982 Jack Nicholson film The Border, had saw the story on the news and he ended up turning it into the script that we see here. Reeve, for his part, had encountered the script and started carrying it around with him for the next couple years, loving it. So when Cannon came calling for Superman, he saw this as his chance to really get this made. Now, to be fair, Cannon was true to their word about making street smart but once again as they've proven time in and time out they went cheap and they shot themselves in the foot on the project and they left their stars rather upset you see street smart was made like a typical canon movie for about six million dollars and canon hired director jerry schatzberg who 
was no slouch in his own right. He had directed Panic in Needle Park, and he had directed Scarecrow back in the 70s. For casting, too, they had some decent big names. You have Christopher Reeve, but then you also have a young Mimi Rogers coming in. And then they rounded the cast out by having Andre Gregory of My Dinner with Andre fame, and Kathy Baker, who at the time was best known for her role as playing Alan Shepard's wife Louise in the 1983 movie The Right Stuff. Oh yeah! And the production was equally dismissive about hiring the film's main antagonist. It ended up being this middle-aged African-American guy who, at the time, his biggest claim to fame was working on the PBS show The Electric Company. That would be one Morgan Freeman. Oh, and the soundtrack, if you thought this would be, you know, something run down and lazy? Nope. Straight Bebop, brought to you courtesy of Miles Davis and Robert Irving III. Seriously, all of that, it sounds like lightning in a bottle, doesn't it? Well, no, it, it should have been. But as per usual, problems started early and often on filming. You see, filming began in April of 1986, and it went to early July. To save on money, Cannon decided to force Schatzberg to shoot in Montreal instead of shooting in New York proper, where the film takes place. And while they were there, they took advantage of the fact that by being in Canada, they could hire cheap, non-union crews. Since, again, if they had shot in actual New York, they would have had to actually pay crews union wages what they were worth. Now, Reeve himself was a very pro-union actor. So, of course, when picket lines started to form in protest, he joined in. And he was forced to go to bat for the workers himself, publicly fighting with the Go-Go Boys over their methods on his own movie. Now, yeah, an agreement was actually hammered out, but still, it wasn't a great look for the studio. And again, this was a movie that, in theory, should have gotten a lot of people far more excited. I could get you an interview with a Times Square pimp. In 2,000 words, I'm going to look into this man's skull. Man. Jonathan Fisher is a reporter with a deadline. Why is it that I can't get anybody to talk to me out here? Look, I gotta go. He's about to get a dangerous idea. This is fantastic. Where'd you get all this stuff? Easy. You made it up. Now he's crossing the line between fact and fiction. To Tyrone. And his lie has landed him in the middle of a murder investigation. Bail is set at $250,000. Mr. Smalls can make bail. Make him an expert on you. I want everybody to know he wrote that story about you. Jonathan Fisher. Jonathan, right, right, right. I will show you the streets, man. Jonathan Fisher has a lot to learn. I take the bread. Hey, take it easy. Yeah? Absolutely no one refuses to comply with my subpoenas or withholds evidence from my court. Remove the prisoner. He thinks he's tough enough. You're gonna write them notes that everybody's been asking for. But then you're gonna say that on the day that that dude thought of you and I were in Rockway somewhere having a hot dog. If you tamper with evidence, if I even think you're tampering with evidence, I'm gonna put you so far away you won't even remember what the streets look like. I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna catch you. But he better wise up fast. Because there's only one way to survive on the streets. Out of blow your brains out right now. I'm dead. You're dead. Christopher Reeve, Morgan Freeman, Street Smart.
Now here's where the crazy really kicks in. You see, during this time of well, let's call it what it is, desperation. When Cannon was really looking to have a hit, any hit, anything they could glom onto to either make money or give them critical acclaim, or at the very least, give them the image of being financially solvent. And what do they have here with Street Smart? They have a well-intentioned star who believes in a project, he does the work, he puts it together, and then he tries to make it all happen for them. And for all of his efforts, they decide to not go with what the talent has brought them. No, instead, what they do is, when it came time for Street Smart to be released in March of 1987, Canon had decided they were going to make very little effort to actually promote it, or even show it. What they instead wanted to do was focus their energy on promoting a little Vietnam movie, 1987's The Hanoi Hilton, which they would release the same month, with Michael Moriarty starring as well as Paul Lee Matt. The prevailing logic was that, you see, Over the Top got dominated a couple months back at the box office with the critical and commercial success that was Platoon. So naturally, the Go-Go Boys, always being Johnny-come-latelys, they figured, well, Vietnam is the hot topic right now. We should really promote our Vietnam movie, get in on some of that sweet action. So Street Smart would end up opening on less than 300 screens in the U.S. without much fanfare, without any marketing support from the studio. And here is the weird part. It was critically very well received but audiences outside of metropolitan areas didn't have the chance to see it and thus it got pulled from screens after only a few weeks earning 1.1 million dollars against its initial six million dollar budget oh and lest you think otherwise the hanoi hilton it was a critical failure and a box office bomb By the time 1987 had closed, Morgan Freeman was nominated for an Oscar for his performance in the film Street Smart, which, had canon properly promoted and nurtured, could have actually given them both a prestige picture as well as a critical and commercial hit. But no, instead, they had figuratively shrugged their shoulders, and now, knowing that they had contractually placated Reeve, they moved on to what their true goal had always been, getting Superman 4 made. While he did have help in writing it from both Lawrence Connor and Mark Rosenthal, Reeve's idea for the story that would become the screenplay for Superman 4 actually stemmed from his very real interest in the nuclear arms race that was ongoing between the U.S. and the USSR, aka the Soviet Union. Reeve would note that it was the one-two punch of both having him recording the narration of a documentary film about a group of children who had interviewed State Department officials as well as Russian government representatives about their very real fears about living during a time of nuclear proliferation. On the very same day he was recording the dialogue for that documentary, Samantha Smith, a little girl from Manchester, Maine, who had garnered global attention when she wrote a letter to the then Secretary General of the USSR, Yuri Antropov, in 1982, 
telling him about her very real fears that their two countries would get into a nuclear conflict, begging for peace between the nations, when she died tragically in a plane crash. Thus, Reeve got the idea that it would be Superman receiving a letter asking him to please help rein in and control the arms race that was actually occurring. Here's the problem. Cannon did not have the money to make a real big budget picture, but it was deciding it was going to act as if. You see, if you recall, in our last episode, we talked about them selling off a bunch of assets to Warner Brothers. And in doing so, Cannon had managed to raise about $75 million in capital just to keep the lights on. And that allowed them to go and get an extended line of credit of about $65 million from the First Bank of Boston. And it is here that the Go-Go Boys made what I am going to call a dire mistake. You see, instead of putting the money on this project, properly funding Superman 4, and then later taking any of that runoff money and properly funding Masters of the Universe, two very hot, very popular, very potentially lucrative properties, instead, Golan and Globus fell back into their old habits and they instead used that money to fund a very large slate of low quality crap pictures. Because why would you make one or two really good movies when you could finance like 13 mediocre ones? Except honestly this wasn't 13 mediocre ones. Because if you recall, I had mentioned last week that Golan had issued a press release stating that Canon was going to be cutting back on the films it made, and it was going to stick to a far more reasonable production slate. Well, I hate to break it to you, he changed his mind. Like a junkie telling the world that this time, for real, it was going to be his last time, honest, the Go-Go Boys went back to their old habits, and with this cash infusion that they got from selling off assets to Warner Brothers and getting this loan from the Boston Bank, they were going to crank out some more schlock. So instead of going for a well-funded, healthy film, they went the mediocre route. They went the full canon treatment, and they ended up financing 30 films on fumes getting a bunch of garbage on all of their returns, but with each time Golan telling people and thinking to himself, yeah, yeah, that one didn't work, but the next one could be a hit. Now, the original budget for Superman 4 was supposed to be $30 million, which, you know, for a canon, and I'm using air quotes, big budget, wide release franchise picture would have been considered quite healthy and respectable. It would have accounted for the stars, the special effects, and the scope of production. They had shopped around for directors, and while Reeve had very willingly offered up his services to do the job himself, he had never helmed a full film before. So the Go-Go Boys actually wanted to try to court some established players. They had reached out to the original Superman director Richard Donner, but he gave a hard pass on coming back to the franchise. And after that, they went with horror director Wes Craven. 
but the latter would end up bowing out over having creative differences when he spoke with Reeve. For his part, Reeve had begged the Gogo Boys, you need to go talk to Ron Howard, get him involved in the project. But no, no, they thought they knew better, so they went with seasoned thriller director Sidney J. Fury, who had helmed such classics as The Ipcris File, The Entity, and Iron Eagle. For casting, they had gotten the original gang of actors back together again, the ones who had skipped making Superman 3. So they secured Gene Hackman to come back and play Lex Luthor, they got Margot Kidder to come and reprise her role as Lois Lane, as well as getting Jackie Cooper and Mark McClure to return again to play editor Perry White and fellow reporter Jimmy Olsen, respectively. But new additions would be found here. To stay hip with the youth of the day, John Cryer, who is just hot and coming off of successfully playing Ducky on John Hughes' Pretty in Pink, he was cast as Luther's obnoxious nephew and henchman, Lenny. Mariel Hemingway joined the cast to play Lacey Warfield, the newly appointed editor of the Daily Planet, who happens to just fall in love with Clark Kent and she was put there by her father, the wealthy tabloid tycoon, played by Sam Wanamaker. Last but not least, an unknown Chippendale dancer turned actor named Mark Pillow was cast to snarl, growl, and end up battling Superman as his new nemesis, Nuclear Man. Almost immediately, the Go-Go Boys decided they would have to go cheap on production, and the first thing they did was slash the budget down to $17 million, opting instead to do things on the fly, looking to cut corners wherever they could. As Canon didn't actually have the funds to properly make a blockbuster picture, even though they were telling everyone that that's exactly what they were making. Gone were location shots set in New York and in Kansas. Nope, those would end up being done in the United Kingdom, with Milton Keynes poorly doubling as the Big Apple, and Hertfordshire doubling as Smallville, Kansas. Things actually got sad in kind of a hurry. Actor John Cryer would later recount that when they were making the film, it was sort of a heartbreaking experience, because it was a debacle to end all debacles. Now, for his part, he loved working with Gene Hackman. He even corrected his pronunciation on the word nuclear. But, as he would go on to tell The Onion's AV Club, it slowly became apparent that things were not going well and that Cannon was running out of money. It started off small. They would start dropping sequences out of the script. And then, the craft services table got smaller and smaller. And then, the props got worse and worse. As shooting finished, a few months later, Cryer would end up running into Christopher Reeve, and they would go to have lunch together. And that's when Cryer shared how excited he was for the movie to come out. And Reeve told him, to his face, you know, the movie, it's going to be an absolute mess. We had six months of flying work that they were supposed to shoot. Cannon cut five months out of it. They've thrown together an edit that barely makes sense. He wasn't lying. For the flying work... Reeve was stuck doing some crazy, crazy things. 
When Reeve was filmed flying in previous outings as Superman, he would be filmed by using force projection views, which allowed them to change direction, have his hair and cape flutter in the breeze, and all done with blue screen work going on behind him while he pivoted in front of another camera. A camera trick that was quite effective and looked really good on film, but the filming itself took longer, and it was considered, at least by the Go-Go Boys, to be rather costly. When production was moved to London, director Fury was certain that the special effects team could be handled by the Elstree crew. They would be available to meet the challenge and use their blue screen techniques. But he hadn't counted on Golan going and replacing the very knowledgeable British effects personnel with a bunch of cheaper imported Israeli hires. As shooting was going on, the Gogo Boys just kept pressing to cut down more and more of the script, which angered the director and the film's star. What's more, Folks got hurt on set while filming. Stuntman John Lees, who would go on to double for Pillow as Nuclear Man, had his cable rigging snap during a flying shot, and he found himself plummeting 25 feet to the ground, shattering his left ankle and breaking both of his heels. The injury ended up causing him to have to learn how to walk again, and eventually he would have to sue Cannon to even cover his injury damages, finally being awarded $442,000. For his part, Mark Pillow himself got hurt while fighting on the moon battle with Reeve, breaking a bone in his foot during their tussle. Indeed, when the shooting was done, Sidney J. Fury was out leaving disgusted with canon. He left considering that the production was going to be finished, at least special effects wise, as the go-go boys kept trimming the entire film down. But at this point, to him, the film was in the can, so when he was walking away, he figured he was walking away, leaving everything in the responsible hands of people who would make money off of this film. He was told that, yeah, the special effects team would step in and they would create all those missing effects sequences that the film was going to show, you know, for flying, action, whatnot. What became immediately apparent, though, was most of those shots were intentionally never going to be finished by the Go-Go Boys as a cost-saving measure for canon, horrifying the famous director when the film would come out months later. Those flying effects, when they were created, they were done by using traveling mat shots, which looked both terrible, and it's a special effect that at the time was relegated more to TV production. Worse though, they would take a single shot and they would just keep reusing it over and over and over again. And when the movie was edited together, it made it look, well, super chintzy. Rigging can clearly be seen during number of the flight scenes, and the lighting was not matched to the scene itself, creating color clashes on screen. The shot of Superman himself flying into the camera towards the audience, that got recycled over nine times on the big screen. Did any of this trouble or even humble the Go-Go Boys? Oh, hell no. They were here, and they wanted to make money, and they were sure this was a project that would do that. So they even, in their hubris, put out a poster that would tease that Superman 5 was going to be going into production as soon as filming wrapped on this one. Yet one more ugly incident would rear its head though. A lawsuit ended up being filed against Reeve, Cannon, and Warner Brothers by screenwriters Barry Taff and Kenneth Stoller. 
who claimed that it was they who had originally come up with the idea for Superman 4, and until they were going to get compensated, they would attempt to block the release of the film in court. According to author Austin Trunick, Reeve was served with court summons while he was on stage preparing to tape a spot for Johnny Carson in 1987, and the accusations and the action of being summoned sent the actor into such a rage it took both Carson and co-host Ed McMahon to pause recording and to get Reeve backstage away from the studio audience to just help calm him. Now, on paper, Taff and Stoller had a decent argument. Their original script entitled Superman IV The Confrontation had many of the same scenes and setups as Reeve, Conner, and Rosenthal's script. And what's more, they had registered their treatment with the Writers Guild of America back in 1985. They'd even mailed a copy of it to Reeve. Reeve did have a signature that he received the script, but he had maintained that he had actually not read the treatment, noting that people would mail him potential projects often and he wouldn't look at them. Now, while the case would not go on to block the actual release of Superman 4 when it hit the theaters in late July of 1987, it did generate a large amount of bad publicity that Reeve took rather personally, accusing him of plagiarism and generating a slew of articles with headlines like Man of Steel, S-T-E-A-L, and Reeve flies off with writer's ideas. Incidentally, the lawsuit itself would eventually make the court proper, where a judge would look at it and then throw the entire case out, but by that time, Reeve himself had already felt that the damage was done. All that said, folks, man, you've been ever so patient listening to me prattle on like this. How's about I shut up and we get to that trailer? What do you say? The greatest hope against the threat of nuclear war is Superman. I'm going to do what our governments have been unwilling or unable to do. Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. The greatest threat to Superman is Lex Luthor. Smarter than I thought. We can make the world safe for war profits. He's created the ultimate weapon to annihilate the Man of Steel. You'd risk worldwide nuclear war for your own personal financial gain. Nobody wants war. I just want to keep the threat alive. Dude of Steel, where are you going to get it? You know you're a workaholic. Let's just stop and smell the roses, huh? Christopher Reeve, Gene Hackman, Jackie Cooper, John Cryer, with Mariel Hemingway and Margot Kidder as Lois Lane. Superman 4, his most important adventure, the quest for peace. We open on Russian cosmonauts orbiting out there in space when an accident sends one flying out in open orbit. 
Thinking all is lost, at least until out of nowhere, Superman, as played by Christopher Reeve, shows up and retrieves him, returning him gently back to his capsule and wishing him well. We then jump to Smallville, Kansas, where, in the guise of mild-mannered reporter Clark Kent, Superman returns to his ancestral home to tour the Kent family farm just one more time before it all goes up on the market for sale, retrieving from the barn a luminescent gem, which we learn is a Kryptonian energy module that he has inherited from his birth parents, Jor-El and Lara with implicit instructions that it can only be used once. Clark then meets with a real estate agent and promises that he wants to sell his ancestral home, with the caveat, though, that it goes to a real farmer. At the same time, Lex Luthor, as played by Gene Hackman, has been in prison, working on a chain gang in a quarry, when he finds himself easily busted out by his punk nephew Lenny, as played by John Cryer. And as soon as that happens, the two immediately return to Metropolis, where the goal is to finally take down the Man of Steel in a grand plot for revenge. After saving a commuter train he normally takes to work from certain disaster, Clark and his co-worker Lois Lane, as played by Margot Kidder, arrive at their jobs at the Daily Planet newspaper to learn that their editor, Perry White, as played by Jackie Cooper, has been fired and the paper itself has been taken over by David Warfield, played by Sam Wanamaker, who places his daughter Lacey Warfield, played by Mariel Hemingway, in charge, much to Kent, Lane, and fellow reporter Jimmy Olsen, as played by Mark McClure's chagrin. No more straight journalism with integrity. No, the Daily Planet is now going to become a sleazy tabloid. It's not all bad, though because Lacey herself is very attracted to Kent's dedication and his honesty. So Lois, seeing this, attempts to set up a double date, with Lacey going with Clark and, of course, herself going with Superman. During said takeover, a nuclear arms race intensifies between the United States and the USSR, prompting a small child, Jeremy, as played by Damian McLaren, to write Superman, asking him to please take care of things? Clark, reading the letter, decides, yes, it truly is time, and he swaps into his Superman persona, and he flies off to address the United Nations, explaining to them that he plans to rid the world of nuclear weapons, gathering up all of the missiles and all of the weapons in a large, large net, and then throwing them into the sun for disposal. Secretary, I don't represent any country, but I'd like to address the delegates. Well, in that case, you will need a sponsor. I believe that will do. Please. Thank you. What's he going to say? Something wonderful. Madam Secretary, honorable delegates, Ladies and gentlemen, for many years now, I've lived among you as a, a visitor. I've seen the beauty of your many cultures. I felt great joy in your magnificent accomplishments. I've also seen the folly of your wars. As of today, I'm not a visitor anymore, because the Earth is my home too. We can't live in fear, and I can't stand idly by and watch us stumble into the madness of possible nuclear destruction. 
And so I've come to a decision. I'm going to do what our governments have been unwilling or unable to do. Effective immediately, I'm going to rid our planet of all nuclear weapons. Here's the problem. While Superman does this, Lex Luthor, with the help of Lenny, steals a sample of the Man of Steel's hair from a museum, and he creates a, quote, genetic matrix copy of Superman's DNA. And then he gets a way to attach it to a nuclear weapon, so that when Superman throws said weapon into the sun, he ends up activating the process that creates a dark clone of the hero. Dubbing the new creation Nuclear Man, as played by Mark Pillow, Lex is suddenly ready to unleash his living weapon onto an unsuspecting world, targeting the hero personally, delighting that his weapon draws on the immense power of the sun, Luther believes he can control the clone to his own end. After making a vague threat, Superman is forced to leave an awkward planned date to rush over to Luther's penthouse to confront him. Look closely at the cell structure. You see anything familiar? You've already broken all the laws of man, Luther. Now it looks as though you've broken the laws of nature, too. I can only assume you must have hidden a device of some kind in one of those missiles I hurled into the sun. You know, Mr. Muscle, I'm going to really miss these little chats we had together. You're the only one that can keep up with me. Lenny! What? I want to propose a toast. To a nice guy who's about to finish last. Destroy Superman. Later. He's a little bit anxious. Can you blame him? Not one of your great thinkers. But I, in all modesty, am. <laughs> You know, the really touching thing about this plan is you helped me devise it. Your time in prison has twisted your mind into a delusionary state, Luther. No, 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 listen. When I escaped from prison, I had one thing on my mind. The end of Superman. So there I was. The first time in my life that I didn't have a long-range, truly devious criminal scheme. And then I came up with it. With this guy. And you gone. I'm going to make a fortune rearming the world. You'd risk worldwide nuclear war for your own personal financial gain. Nobody wants war. I just want to keep the threat alive. What ensues next is a brawl that ends up raging across the globe, with Nuclear Man doing things like breaking the Great Wall of China, setting off a volcano in Italy, and then hurling around the Statue of Liberty, all things that the Man of Steel is forced to set right, all while continuing to battle. Nuclear Man does end up scratching Superman across the neck with his radioactive silver nails, and being a cloned Kryptonian himself, he's able to injure and incapacitate the hero, kicking Superman off into space and causing him to lose his cape. The papers end up running headlines the next day that Superman is missing and may be dead. His cape was found, but no body. Clark himself stays home from work, rendered terribly ill from radiation poisoning that he's experiencing, playing everything off like he just has the flu when Lois comes by to check on him. In reality, he's starting to die. So in desperation, he ends up utilizing that Kryptonian module to heal himself, and it happens just in time. Nuclear Man, then, for some inexplicable reason, 
becomes obsessed with Lacey Warfield and wants to claim her for himself. He demands in public that they bring her to him or he will start to hurt innocence. Superman yet again arrives and attempts to placate him, showing him into the Daily Planet and then trapping him in an elevator, taking the entire car and cable with him up to the moon, where they can fight this out without any innocent people getting hurt. While he does manage during the scuffle to avoid Nuclear Man's claws, Superman still takes quite the beating, and he gets pounded into the surface of the planetoid, buried under the rock. Nuclear Man does fly back to Earth, where he grabs Lacey, and he takes her up into space too, where she can somehow breathe. Superman, though, ends up changing his tactics, and he pushes the moon out in front of the sun, causing a full lunar eclipse, depowering the evil clone. He then flies Lacey back to safety and drops Nuclear Man's depowered body into a power plant's reactor core, turning him back into a being of pure energy. Superman then comes back to Earth to address the world about his hope for peace, but he tells the public it's not something that he has the power to give them. They have to want it, too. Thank you. Well, once more, we survived the threat of war and found a fragile peace. I thought I could give you all the gift of the freedom from war, but I was wrong. It's not mine to give. We're still a young planet. There are galaxies... Out there, other civilizations for us to meet, to learn from. What a brilliant future we could have. And there will be peace. There will be peace when the people of the world want it so badly that their governments will have no choice but to give it to them. I just wish you could all see the Earth the way that I see it. Because when you really look at it, it's just one world. Back at Metropolis, Perry White has managed to convince the paper's shareholders to help him buy back a controlling interest in the Daily Planet, wrestling the day-to-day -day running away from Warfield and turning it back into a proper newspaper again. Superman, for his part, catches up with the fleeing Luthers, and he sends young Lenny on to Boys Town, both to get an education and some much-needed moral lessons while Lex Luthor is deposited back at the very same quarry his chain gang was working on before. Satisfied, Superman flies into the atmosphere to look down upon the Earth, before smiling into the camera and cruising back down to the surface, as credits roll. Now, where do we begin? I mean, I could talk about what doesn't work here, but... Then you'd have to pause, and then I'd have to turn to you and in a calm and measured fashion say something like, Jesus, don't you have a set of eyes in your head? Are you seeing this too? The effects are cheesy and brazenly lame. The acting is laughable. The story is convoluted. This is a perfect storm in a box of what's wrong. Now, I know people out there like to focus on issues that they have with the actor Mark Pillow as Nuclear Man, but honestly, for my money, I'd give him a complete pass, because he's doing what he had to in a role that was laughably vapid to begin with, and honestly, that's all on the writing. It's not his fault. He did what he was supposed to do. He's this young, buff, good-looking guy for the time this film was made. He did his job. He snarled, he growled, he fought Christopher Reeve. Give the man a break. He did this for a SAG card. No, no. To me, the real villain of this picture is Cryer, 
a man who is grating and obnoxious at all points of this film when he's on the screen. And if one is trying to claim, well, that was just done for comic relief, I would tell them, well then, you are quite mistaken. Right. I do okay or what, Uncle Wax? Lenny, I've always considered you the Dutch elm disease in my family tree. But this time, nephew, you did fine. You gonna skip the country, Uncle Lex? Lenny, you pathetic product of the public school system. Your Uncle Lex has had nothing on his awesome mind since he's been incarcerated except one thing. Destroy, Destroy Superman! Superman. Now, for the record, I don't hate John Cryer personally. He was working with what he had here, but they cut a number of the scenes that he was in down, and they left this crap instead. And I'm talking hard. There was a, about 45 minutes of this movie that got cut down. Seriously, there was a whole subplot about having a Bizarro-style Superman get made, the rough draft of Nuclear Man that didn't work out, that fights Superman and loses right off the bat that sort of gave shades of Frankenstein to this whole film, and that's the impetus that leads Lex and Lenny into dealing with the pitfalls of creating cloned life itself. All of that got cut for time, which changed the pacing, and changed a lot of the tone, and also caused, well, problems, really, with editing. Throw in a severe lack of special effects money, and you can see quickly why we get more of Cryer with his iridescent leopard jean jacket holding drumsticks, saying really bizarro things, and having a less cohesive storyline. Now, I will willingly wrap my head around the notion that, ultimately, this was not the end vision that Christopher Reeve had when he was working on the story, but I will say I do have a real hard time with what he was trying to accomplish with the writers when it came to the romance angle of the plot. I mean, as Superman, he's attracted to and he spends his time trying to awkwardly woo Lois Lane. We know that. We've come to expect that from the character. That's what he does during the entire film series and during the entire arc of Superman as a character in the comics and in TV and just everywhere. That's his girl, Lois Lane. Although it should strike us as a bit strange because... Honestly, we're sort of pretending Superman 3 didn't exist here, and he's erased her memory now multiple times at this point into the series, so she doesn't remember that they have a relationship previous. And, well, that, and honestly, I have to say, nothing really conveys the sentiment of I love you to a woman than by grabbing her and launching her into the sky at Mach 3. But something interesting does come out of this, because when you get the new edition of Lacey Warfield, who actually on paper is sort of a unique character. In the film here, we get, well, a complete waste on multiple levels. Because when one watches the final product, you have to have some sympathy for Mariel Hemingway being forced to work on such low-brow fare. And then, having to have her character rendered so nonsensical throughout the various edits, the cuts to the dialogue, the cuts to the weird nuclear man seeing her and falling in love with her. Instead, all we get is suddenly she's being kidnapped by a man who, on screen, has never seemingly met her, let alone laid eyes on her. And in reality, all of this is actually a shame, 
because she's bringing something new to the mix into the series here that we have not yet seen. We have a character who is actually, genuinely attracted to Clark Kent because he is a good guy, a principled reporter who tries to do what's right, and she herself is somebody who doesn't really give a hoot about Superman at all. And this is played comedically for laughs, but she cares about Kent, and she actually enjoys spending time with him, talking to him about him, leading to sort of interesting scenes that get to play out, like them working out together at the gym. Try this one. Clark, are you okay? Yeah. Sorry. No pain, no gain. Jeez, what a jerk. I never realized it before. I guess a lot of people I know are jerks. Maybe you think the same thing about me. That's why you keep avoiding me. Oh, no, I don't think that at all. Just been really busy, that's all. But wait! You know, Lois is doing that interview with uh, Superman about his peace mission? Mm -hmm. Well, I was thinking the four of us could get together and go to my hotel suite and have high tea. It's very chic. <sighs> Did you hand me those weights, Clark? Uh, excuse me. Wait a minute, Lacey. Come early. The view is so romantic from my balcony. See ya. Honestly, this is something that's squandered. Instead of using that dynamic for some real effect, what we're left with is one of the hoariest old sitcom tropes, where we have Kent in his Superman persona having a double date dinner with both Lacey and Lois at the same time in the same apartment, constantly changing, coming up with bad excuses to keep running back and forth in and out of the room only to swap to his alter ego played in a scene that goes on 15 minutes too long. I know this is a movie that is designed to be enjoyed by children, but geez, give kids some credit, please. Now, don't get me wrong. Superman 3 was a terrible movie to watch. But when we compare the writing of Superman 4, they're not even close. And yet, I will make this statement. If you were to ask me, hey, you get to watch one of these two films and see which one is going to be the better watching experience, I'm still going to stop, pause, and then I'm going to tell you without hesitation, go ahead, put on Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Why? Well, for starters, you got to go with Gene Hackman. He's chewing the scenery here. He's smoking his cigars. He's giving these blustery speeches about his own brilliance. And he got paid clearly to have fun. Honestly, I find him just to be a joy to watch on the screen to do his thing. Superman, the subject of our newest exhibit, has graciously donated a strand of his hair to the museum. So we can all have the fun of seeing how strong he really is. Here you can see a thousand pound load easily suspended by his single hair. The museum will be closing soon, so we should hurry a little. You know what I can do with a single strand of Superman's hair? You make it toupee that flies. That hair is a sample of Superman's genetic material. The building blocks of his body. With my genius and enough nuclear power to mutate the genes, I can create a being who's more powerful than him. His total allegiance to me. I'll also say this, as rough as this script is, 
Reeve still tries to sell it, and in his own stiff way, he still seems to be able to convey that sort of tongue firmly embedded in the cheek, well, fashion that he has over the course of these films. He delivers lines with a level of sincerity and serious that really sort of ramps up the camp factor to 11, making a film that shouldn't work still function here. And it's a hell of a lot of fun to sit through. Another thing this film has going for it, I'm going to say selfishly, the moon fight. Superman and Nuclear Man having their no-holds-barred slugfest on the surface of the moon is iconic and cool, and it's a scene that, in spite of the cheapness of the set, still is really a sight to behold, and honestly, it's mind-boggling for a six-year-old Chris. Watching them grapple, hit each other with moon rocks, and then cap it all off with Nuclear Man driving Superman into the surface of the satellite like a tent spike? Mwah! Chef's kiss for the action alone. Look, I, I get it. Nobody who has a modicum of good taste can look you straight in the eye and say, Well, what you have in front of us here is Superman 4, and it's really a great movie. Because it's not. It's a train wreck of a picture. But it still has an air of charming whimsicality about it for a film that, if you were to put on today, children of a certain age would be quickly drawn to its very simplistic, see, butchered, narrative, and its overall basic themes. Nuclear weapons are bad, helping people is good. And honestly, at the end of the day, shouldn't that count for something? Isn't that a film that more people should be watching? So I can hear you out there. Chris, how was the film received? Well, Canon taking over a major blockbuster franchise and then clearly going cheap with it. That wasn't a fact that was missed by many. Now, to give him credit for his part, Christopher Reeve was a gentleman about the film, even when he had every right not to be. He was honest. He did let folks know that he had some problems, but he did his level best to promote the film and to try to make it successful in his own way. He was quoted in an interview stating, look, I'm going to be as professional as I can be. Always, that is my intention. I know it's important that I promote Superman 4, and I'm working very hard to support the picture, but I have to admit, it was an incredible disappointment to me that Canon didn't give Street Smart any support. It was a subtle film. It was an original film, and Menahem went to great pains to tell me how much he loved it after the fact. I know the company is having financial difficulties, but I feel it deserved more than it was given. They should have sold it to another distributor who could have done things for the film. He would go on to comment that working for the Go-Go Boys was an interesting experience, stating they're kind of like the guys who fly tourists but then want first-class service. I do admire their recklessness and buying into Superman, although they like to nickel and dime you on paper clips. Promote it, though he did, he himself could not stop the tide of critics from laying into this offering. 
Janet Maslin of the New York Times would end up commenting that the film looked chintzy, noting that the cinematography is so sloppy that Superman's turquoise suit sometimes appears green, and commented that Reeve and Hackman are still enjoyable to watch here, and she even enjoys Cryer's turn as the obnoxious nephew. The story can be a bit self-righteous, but the action does keep it moving, acknowledging that threadbare as it's beginning to look, the series hasn't lost its raison d'etre. And there's life in the old boy yet. This was a view that was not shared with other critics. You see, Variety's cart came out swinging, opening with, Despite his failure to dispatch the caped hero on screen, it would appear that Lex Luthor's wish has finally come true. Because Superman has finally been done in by the makers of this film. He continued on noting that, The earlier films in this series were far from perfect, but at their best they had some flair and some agreeable humor, qualities which this one sorely lacks. Chris Turnquist of Box Office Magazine came in hot, noting that, The distributor may be Warner Brothers, but the look and the feel of this cheeseball epic is strictly from canon. The film is poorly lit and photographed. It features clumsy editing, tacky sets, bargain basement special effects on quality level that Superman 4 should be a TV show, and some really lame direction by Sidney J. Fury. Children may find Superman 4 to be entertaining, but they better enjoy it while they can, because from the looks of this, the Man of Steel has finally flown his last on the big screen. Rita Kempley of the Washington Post pointed out how cheap the offering felt noting that viewers should expect flashy special effects, especially now that the Salkinds were out of the picture, and noting that Canon Group is now holding the money clip, and they're known to not be big spenders. Superman 4, except for the glitzy new villain named Nuclear Man, is one of the cheesiest movies that was ever made. Kempley then takes issue with Reeves' insistence that Kent is far cooler than Superman and far more vulnerable in this cinematic offering, calling him a sort of Alan Alda who can fly. Screen International had pointed out that the film relies far too much on the tongue-in-cheek humor, stating that the entire film lacks purpose. The comic scenes, the flying sprees, and the battles in space all seemingly following one another, almost at random. In the end, though, it wouldn't matter. Superman IV The Quest for Peace was released on July 24, 1987, going up against Robocop, which was playing for its second week, as well as a re-release of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Mark Harmon's Summer School, and the Ritchie Valley biopic La Bamba. In spite of all this, it ended the weekend at a distant fourth. It would go on to run several more weeks, but it would eventually get pulled in mid-August, only making an estimated $15 million stateside, and then picking up another $22.1 million internationally, putting them at $36 million in total, which, yes, was in theory a profit on a $17 million investment. But with so much crippling debt weighing down the studio of Canon, it was just another bruising blow to the Go-Go Boys, one that could have actually been avoided. Superman 4 was so colossally bungled 
that it killed not only any future sequels for the franchise, but it put a pall over the character appearing on the big screen for almost a solid two decades. And I'm being quite serious with this. I'm not counting Tim Burton and Nicolas Cage's late 90s proposed Superman Lives, a.k.a. Superman Reborn, a.k.a. Kevin Smith's Superman. Because even with the crazy producing from John Peters, Warner Brothers had wanted to have a big blockbuster hit movie, something that would be able to go toe-to-toe with other films that were coming out in the late 90s, particularly in 1999, like Star Wars Episode One, The Mummy, Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. So naturally, they backed the very well-thought-out modern big-screen adaptation of a TV series, The Wild Wild West, which itself was also produced by John Peters and starred Will Smith and Kevin Kline. And as we all know, that was a crippling critical and commercial disappointment in its own right. Superman would not get back onto the big screen until 2006's Superman Returns, with Brandon Routh coming in to play the Man of Steel, and a not-yet-tarnished Kevin Spacey showing up to play Lex Luthor, essentially ignoring the original Superman 3 and 4, and instead just acting as a direct sequel to 1981's Superman 2, which, as we all know, well, that movie tanked as well. Jesus, they spent $220 million, and it went down like a lead balloon. It would then take even more time, and 2013's Man of Steel, now a full quarter century after Superman 4 had made its debut, to finally get an audience to have a successful outing with the character on the big screen. Now, all that said, Menahem Golan spun Superman 4 as a triumph for canon, and he told people that, yeah, that sequel, we're still going to get it into pre-production the following year, not seeing the writing on the wall. When canon did eventually start its terrible spiral downwards, the rights to Superman as a character would end up reverting back to the Salkinds, and the cycle of disappointment would begin anew. Now, for his part, Yoram Globus would later, in a candid moment, admit that, yeah, what we should have done was pull all of our collective focus and resources into Superman 4 instead of making other movies. That was our big chance to have a breakthrough. And truth be told, we squandered it. Globus would spend the next three and a half years trying to clean up the mess that financially resulted from the fallout of Superman 4. Noting that when Superman made its release, Canon stock plummeted, with shares trading at $4.75, when they had, at the same time the year previous, traded at $45.05. In hindsight, Yoram would have admitted that we were a $500 million company that couldn't pay its bills, and we could have avoided all of this. His cousin, Golan, took a very different view. In Golan's estimation, they were a company that was worth $1 billion. They just couldn't raise revenue, possibly admitting without committing that the purchase of EMI Thorn might have been a bit premature. And yet still, he would hold to the fact that he had faith 
that they were all going to see their good fortune turn around when Masters of the Universe came out later that summer in August of 1987, putting all of his hopes and dreams into a single project that would close out the summer season for the company. But that's going to have to be a story for next week when we cover He-Man getting his own big The version of Superman for the Quest for Peace screened here at the LSCE was the 2008 Warner Brothers Superman 4 Film Favorites DVD set, which gives one Superman the Movie Special Edition, Superman 2 Special Edition, Superman 3 Deluxe Edition, and Superman 4 Deluxe Edition. And truthfully, each of the films comes with some really nice bonuses, but for these purposes, let's talk about four. You have a trove of deleted scenes here, with theatrical trailers and commentary from screenwriter Mark Rosenthal. And all of that could be yours on Amazon.com for the low price of $9.99. Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here at the LSCE for telling you where you should purchase your film from. We just feel in this day and age that movie lovers should continue to support physical media so that the rights owners of these films will continue to release the content that we all know and love and crave. And honestly, at the end of the day, isn't that what this is all about? Getting more of what you know, love, and crave? Besides, Superman 4 is such a train wreck of a film. It's so crazily edited, it's so cheesy in its offering, and it's just too strange and fun to pass up. Especially if you're a diehard fan of DC Comics or these characters. So, all of that being said, I'm just going to ask you, what are you waiting for? Get out there and get yourself a copy of Superman 4 today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you so much for joining us. We do hope you'll be back here next week, and indeed, for the rest of the summer long, as we run through some of our favorite titles that Canon has brought us over the years. If you like what we're doing here, that would be the LSCE Dachshunds and myself, please give us a favorable review on Apple Podcasts and hit that subscribe button. Or hey, just do that wherever you're listening to us on. Did you leave us a fun review? Hell, I'll read it here and give you a shout-out on the show. Just think of it as my way of saying thank you for recognizing our love of cinema. Please swing by, check out our website, lscep.com, where we have articles, episodes, and comics for you to peruse. We've recently been added to Stitcher, so you can find us there. Give us a spin if you like. I'm also proud to say we're on Amazon Music. So, if you have an account, you can simply say, Hey, Alexa! play I Saw It on Linden Street today. We're also featured both on Good Pods and Podchaser. Those are podcast databases for listeners and creators alike. Find us there. Give us a follow and review if you could please. And hey, feel free just to like any of the lists that we're a part of to help give us a boost in the old rankings. The more reviews and the increased likes, that affects those marvelous algorithms, and that makes us more searchable. And then we can share more of these films with more people. And you want to do that, don't you? (laughs) Of course you do! Do you have any questions for us? Any comments? Any movies you want us to cover? Anything you thought I got wrong? 
we want to hear from you. Please send us an email or an audio clip by way of lindenstreetcinemaexperience at gmail.com. Do you love social media? Well, we use it here. You can find us on Twitter at LSCEP or on Instagram at LSCE underscore podcast. If you'd like to be even more personable or you wish to contribute a segment to the sidecar, please send an audio message by way of Anchor that's a free and easy app to use. So, until next time, take care out there. Please wash your hands. If you feel like it, wear a mask. Most importantly, stay healthy and well. And remember, folks, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there, everybody. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. Thank you.